Welcome to Not Your Mother's Sex Ed, a podcast that covers all things sexual health and education in a safe and inclusive environment. Made by youth for youth, we're bridging the gaps in our community by breaking down the stereotypical sex ed conversation. You can expect laughter, honesty, and informative conversations. Basically, we've got you covered for everything your mom didn't teach ya. Hi, so it's Lily and Alin from RISE, and we are here today with Sophie from Students for Consent Culture. Can you tell us more about yourself, Sophie, and Students for Consent Culture? For sure. So I'm Sophie. I am the outreach lead at Students for Consent Culture Canada. About me. So I'm a recent graduate from Concordia University. I guess it's kind <laughs> of is a really good way of introducing how I got involved with SFCC and also what SFCC does. So Students for Consent Culture Canada is an explicitly intersectional organization dedicated to supporting grassroots advocacy and activism on university campuses and in civil society at large across um, so-called Canada with big air quotes around it. I live in Jojage or Montreal, which is on unceded Yanyangehaga territory. And so the work that I do is primarily based around Bill 151, which is the act regarding sexual violence policies in post-secondary institutions in Quebec. But we also do a lot of work in Manitoba, British Columbia. We have partnerships with over 50 student unions and universities to, to really try and push consent culture on university campuses. And we're probably most known for our our turn national action plan that was published in October 2017 i think like 2 weeks before hashtag me too blew up and then we just got kind of like thrown into the national sphere in a way that i don't think we were quite prepared for but the good news is is that anti-sexual violence work is something that has always been an issue and it's often been an invisible issue and so something we really try to do is to try and make sure that it's not just work that's being done unpaid, mostly by marginalized people of color or marginalized members of the community like at large, but also that it's compensated and that it's stuff that we're encouraging others to get involved with and mobilize around on their campuses so that they feel supported and heard. And we really try and take a survivor-centered and trauma-informed approach because so many of the frameworks that universities employ don't really do that. So... That's a little bit about us. And what made you join Students for Consent Culture? So when I was in kind of my like last few years of undergrad, Concordia University had a pretty public crisis about sexual violence on our campus. Um, There was a very public essay about the open secret of the abusive professors in our English department. And then as that kind of took hold in, I think, winter 2018, it also became very public that that was going on in a lot of different departments at Concordia in philosophy and psychology, that there was just a lot of really abusive professors who were using their position of power to abuse their students. At the time, I had just been elected to the Concordia Student Union Council of Representatives. And so what I ended up kind of having to do in my role as a representative was, you know, I represented people in the English department, people in the psychology department, people in the philosophy department. And as someone who had experienced sexual violence myself, it was something that right away I knew it's like, well, we're not going to take this quietly and we're not going to let them push this under the rug. So right away, the student union and survivors on campus just kind of banded together. And that was really my first introduction to Students for Consent Culture Canada. Concordia scored the lowest out of any campus in the R-Turn National Action Plan. We got a D minus in 2017. And then it was, (laughs) I joke, it's like, it was all downhill from there. Um, And then once I got sucked in, I just, they couldn't get rid of me. So here I am. (laughs) 
That's so amazing. Yeah, actually, the university me and Alin go to scored a D. Uh, so do you think since the action plan came out, do you see any universities universities really changing their policies at all? Or do you think it's still pretty much the same? So something that was really interesting about the scorecard that was in the national action plan was the way that universities responded to it. You saw a lot of different reactions. Um, students would use those grades to really like as a rallying cry to be like, hey, we have to do better if your sexual violence policies aren't even in like good academic standing on campus, you know? But what ended up happening, I think actually Dalhousie is a really good example. They were on the scorecard. They had one of the lowest grades as well. And they turned around and followed all the R-turn recommendation plans criteria and made a new policy. But then even though the new policy on paper would have gotten an A+, on the ground, the way the policy was implemented was not effective and it was still the same way that it had been before. And so students on Dalhousie's campus were like, well, it doesn't really matter if you get an A if you're not doing the things that you need to do. And we actually see that on a lot of campuses. So since then, policies will be updated. There'll be these like alleged community consultations where people will be listened to. And then on the ground, when you have survivors who are reporting the practice on the day-to-day, the experiences they face, it's just not the same. And I would say at Concordia specifically, I know immediately after winter 2018, there was a task force that was created. And just the way that the university kind of handled that entire situation, they were required by law to create this for this task force. They were required by law to start a committee. And all they ever really cared about was like what the legal requirements were and not really making a, an impactful change to create consent culture um, in a way that would have helped the most vulnerable on campus. So I, I can't say that it's gotten better, <laughs> unfortunately. So something else we wanted to talk about is unhealthy relationships. What are some common signs of unhealthy relationships folks maybe don't often recognize? I feel like it's such a loaded question because when you're in a relationship, it's really hard to see it. Like it's, there, at least in my own experience, you will make excuses for the person that you love. I guess my question, and I tell, I have a little sister, I'm the eldest in my family. I tell my sister this all the time when she's in a bad relationship, like if you were your friend and your partner was treating you this way, What and their partner was treating them this way, what would you tell your friend? And if you could think about it and like remove yourself as being the person experiencing it and look at it, um, things like gaslighting, I think like if they're undercutting your experiences with everything or trying to change your perspective, saying things like, is that really how you feel or is that just how you've been told to feel? Or if they don't support you for things that matter to you um and they're kind of constantly like tearing you down and taking you down a notch that that wears on you over time and you deserve to be with a partner that's not going to do that and that trusts you and empowers you and uplifts you and treats you like an equal so I don't know I feel like a lot of folks don't often recognize that they're in a bad pattern until (laughs) till it's like far down the line um are there any like specific barriers you can mention um for people trying to understand like if their relationship is healthy. So like media, pop culture or norms or anything like that. I feel like I have such a good one for this. Did either of you watch Pretty Little Liars? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So something that I think about a lot and that someone asked me recently, like what is something you wished you knew as a teenager that no one told you about like dating and relationships? Something I wish, like a barrier that I feel there is, especially for 
young women or like teenage girls or people who are like coded as feminine in traditional like heterosexual relationships. I think something that gets talked about a lot is this idea of like an older mentor and even for young men, like being hot for teacher is something that's kind of sexualized. And I think a major barrier to understanding, you know, consent and healthy relationships, especially power dynamics, comes from the fact that our media romanticizes like Ezra and Aria, who were like, she's a 15, 16 year old girl. He's the English teacher in her high school. And you just shouldn't be romanticizing that. And the fact that it's like, oh, but it's fine because she consented really erases that like if someone is in a power over you, over your grades, over your future, you cannot consent. And I think it's a major barrier that isn't really addressed after high school, but also we romanticize this like forbidden romance so much that even it gets brought up in other spaces. I was on a panel with a very prominent constitutional rights lawyer talking about consent in the university. And this constitutional rights lawyer, when I brought up power dynamics and how professor and student relationship should not be allowed in university, because in my opinion, if you're a professor and you fall in love, quote unquote, with your student, you should be able to wait for that person to graduate and you should get out of their way before you start making advances on them. Like you should not be dating someone whose life you could, whose life trajectory you could change by preventing them from being able to do things. This lawyer looked me in my face and said, we can't ban professor-student relationships because that's how you get Romeo and Juliet situations. And this lawyer could not pull a single factual, like tangible, non-fictional example of why these power dynamics shouldn't exist in the real world. And I think that is like a major barrier in the media to understanding consent is just like we keep romanticizing these toxic romantic dynamics and we keep making it this whole thing. And then people are so socialized to accept them that even someone who sits and goes to court in the highest judicial bodies in the land will say that it's okay because Romeo and Juliet or whatever, like that's unacceptable. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So what is something you're surprised people don't learn about consent in sex ed? Like what's something that you think like if they do learn sex ed is always kind of missing? I feel like something that I think could be hammered home more. I don't know that it's necessarily like actually missing, but I think it definitely can be really expressly stated is the ongoing consent. Like if you start hooking up with someone and partway through they're like, hey, I'm not into it anymore. And you keep pushing them until they say yes, that's not consent. I think like the idea of ongoing consent and like that you should be constantly checking in is something that's really important. And I think a lot of the time I've had some experiences. I was in a sorority when I was in my undergrad and I would bring that up and there would be a lot of specific archetypes of fraternity men who would say to me in response to that, like that it's not sexy to have to like constantly talk. And I don't think that's true. I would actually say that some of the best hookups I've had are like, if someone is checking in with me all the time and being like, do you like that? Like, how does this feel? Are you okay with this? That is 10 times more sexy than a guy who's fumbling around trying to find where the clit is, you know, like it's (laughs) for sure. If you were in charge of how consent and healthy relationships were covered in Canada, how would you want it to be taught? And when do you think people should start learning about it? I mean, I feel like consent is something that we already talk about at a very young age. Like, 
keep your hands to yourself is something that I personally learned in kindergarten. Um, like, ask before you take someone else's belongings. And I think that if we start having those conversations about bodily autonomy at a very young age and we empower kids to really feel like they have ownership over their full selves and they can say no and they can decide, you know, Uh, no, actually, I don't want to hug from this stranger I've never met. Like, I know that's my parents' friend, but like, I don't want to hug them. That's okay. I think that's a really important building block so that as they grow up, they never have the doubt in their head whether or not they can say no. You know, like if we're establishing ground rules, like you can say you don't want to do something with your body from day one, it becomes much easier when you're going into a sexual encounter for the first time to say like, no. (laughs) And I think that's kind of in terms of age range, like we already talk about consent when it comes to other things, we should be talking about it for everything. And bodily autonomy is something that goes hand in hand with that. And in terms of healthy relationships, just I feel like it goes back to that power dynamics thing. Like we should be talking to kids about what healthy relationship boundaries with different kinds of people in their lives are from a very young age, just really the power dynamics go through so many things. Like even if we're talking about different privileges people have. Like if you're in, if you're cis, if you're trans, like we should all be able to understand how the way that we are in the world impacts our relationships with others and be just cognizant of that. Consent is not something that only exists in sex. It's something that exists everywhere. And we need to be, I think, just overall better about talking about what that looks like. So even just the fact that I'm currently on unceded land, we could have a big conversation about consent when I'm living in a place that was built on stolen land, you know, like, there's a conversation on consent. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison, actually. So do you have any tips on when to know when to leave an unhealthy relationship and how to actually do that? Okay, so I feel like unhealthy relationship can be a lot of things. It can be something that it's just like, maybe it's just like toxic to you. Maybe the dynamics have evolved and it's actually a dangerous and unsafe situation. I feel like if you are reaching a point in general with relationships, especially with like monogamous relationships, if you are reaching a point where you are spending more time thinking about breaking up with your partner than you are thinking about being with your partner, you should probably leave the relationship. I don't know if there are any bullet journalers out there, but if you're going to have a habit tracker, include a thought about breaking up with my partner question mark for your like monthly habit trackers. And if 30 out of 30 days, you're like thinking about it, maybe it's time. It helps some people in terms of like, if it's an unsafe situation, like if you are in danger or you think you are in danger, I think that is where the question on how to leave gets more complicated, um, especially in like super unhealthy dynamics where it is abusive in some way. Um, Tips on that is like, please do not feel ashamed that you are in that situation. And please, if you have someone you can trust, give them a call. If that is something that you are able to do, please do it. Tap in your like support people, have them be ready to help you. If you like do not go back into a dangerous situation alone without people knowing. That's how people and like this is very tragic and I don't know how to say this glibly, but like that's how people can be killed. Like that's how people can die. There's a very real risk that when you leave a an abusive partner in, in, in particular, like you, it, it is a very dangerous situation. And, and I'm not saying that to deter anyone, like, please do like, be safe and get out of there th- the best way that you can. And if you have your clutch, like people, even if 
you've distanced yourselves from them throughout the course of this unhealthy relationship, like call whoever your person is. And if you can trust them, like have them do it and try, you know, if you can't do it from your phone because your partner's monitoring it, like find a way of getting a hold of that person, you know, signal will delete. If you have signal as an app on your phone, you can set it up. So it deletes messages. Like after a certain time, there's now secret messages on Facebook. You know, there are ways of getting hold of people and like go in person. If that's an option, socially distant, like just have someone there with you. Um, there are plenty of resources across like different cities for people trying to leave toxic and unhealthy relationships. And I'm sure I could probably look up and find some links now. But like, I, yeah, right off the bat for like dangerous situations, like do not do this alone. You're going to need people there with you to support you through it. And like, don't feel ashamed of having to need other people. There's no shame in that. None of us can do it alone. So if, if it's not a dangerous situation and it's just mildly unhealthy, <laughs> I think some tips for leaving is just like empower yourself to know that not every relationship is going to end the same way that this one will. Even if it's messy, give yourself space to be as messy as you need and to feel everything you need to feel and then come up with your action plan and and get out of there. Yeah. Big caveat. I'm not like, I'm not an expert on this. I would like, this is just the advice I would give my people I care about. Yeah, really well said. So what do you think needs to change like institutionally, whether that be in schools, culture and society, in order for consent or even healthy relationships to be more normalized? There's so much there. I mean, like, institutionally, I think So Students for Consent Culture, we mostly work on university campuses and college campuses. So in the higher education realm, institutionally, the ivory tower, it's like very clearly built for white cis men. Um, Like there's no question about it. Like that was built for white cis heterosexual most of the time men to like thrive and put out their shitty think tank pieces and just like live their best lives while making the rest of us feel like shit. Um, So like... I feel like in order to address institutionally within higher education, a culture of consent and to like make it normalized, we really have to start unpacking who these spaces were built for and try to build new spaces within academia that are inclusive for everyone. Because we're not going to have a conversation about consent if all you're doing is your milk toast land acknowledgement and like not doing any other reparations to indigenous people who's... Um, knowledge forms you don't respect in your institution. Um, I just like, it's not going to be possible until we're having that critical broad scale conversation. It always feels weird to like talk about that. I think um, when it comes to like conversations about like sexual consent, but it's like, if we can't even understand consent on a like, this isn't our land basis, I actually genuinely don't have an idea how we're going to get to that level with other human beings, because it's so fundamental to just like, the concept of consent is like, we have to all agree that this is what we're doing here. And I think institutionally, we really need to grapple with the weight of that um, and really ultimately like decolonize and take an explicitly anti-racist, anti-colonial stance in our institutions to be able to have a conversation about consent that just transforms the way we talk about it already. I think if we start like commodifying it, something that makes me so freaking angry is like the consent is so sexy because it's like consent is just mandatory like you're not actually having sex if people aren't consenting so it's not like sexy it's like there's no consent you're not it's not sex it's assault a question i just thought of as we've been talking i'm wondering what do you think is the impact on young people who are maybe entering their first relationships with someone and they're not being taught about consent or healthy relationships 
I feel like the impact on young people is that we genuinely don't have an understanding of what is and isn't acceptable behavior. When I was 15, um, one of my like earliest encounters with a person was with a 23-year-old camp counselor who was like literally legally my guardian that summer. And I will always, there was only one person in the whole world who acted like that was absolutely insane. (laughs) Uh, And that person was my aunt and she was right. And I was very angry at her, but I think I was angry because I didn't understand it wasn't okay. Like I didn't understand what had happened there because no one had told me. And I think if we're not having those conversations about power dynamics, like I didn't talk to my aunt for years after that. Like I was mad at her. Um, And it was only when my little sister was 15, like years later, and my partner was 23. And I just had this like, oh, no, (laughs) that like it hit me that my aunt had been the only sane person in that whole situation. Um, And like, I think that's like, that's a very tangible, like specific impact is that like, your relationships with other people are going to change because you don't understand that what's going on and what's happening to you is wrong. And I think if you don't know that it's wrong, you may be experiencing trauma that you're not going to be able to deal with because you won't be able to identify it for years down the line. Like it took me, I was 10 years, I'm 25 now. It took me until this year to be able to have a conversation about what happened that summer without like crying in some way. Like it's, that's wild. That's wild that it's like, we don't tell kids that that's super not okay, or we romanticize it. And we have like, Bridget and sisterhood of the traveling pants, like hooking up with her camp counselor. And that's just a normal thing. And like, you know, that's the impact I think on young people entering these early relationships is they don't know what to expect. They don't have the language or the vocabulary to understand it. And they'll, at least in my case, be so self-righteous about being right, that they'll torture relationship with a very important person in their life. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Like, I think just having those like conversations and being like, this happened to me, like this should not happen. Like, just so important. Yeah. And also, like, I think going off of that, the other like the other thing that happens is then you have people who end up in those situations. And what happened with me and the thing that I carried with me for a long time was this deep sense of shame because he did get like like luckily this doesn't happen often this man did face consequences for what he did he did not he did not get to keep his job at the like canoe trip camp where he was exposed to like spending time alone in the backwoods with like teenage girls like he didn't get to keep his job and he didn't get to stay really in his graduate program so he like did face consequences um and that is something that is so rare. So that's nice at least. But the thing that I felt was I felt like it was my fault because to me, I had done something to betray him because people found out and it was my fault because it was people that were related to me. Um, And like, you know, if you're 15 and someone who is that much older than you is taking advantage of you and the situation that you're in, like it is 100% not your fault. And the less that we tell kids that even if they say yes, to someone with that age differential, it cannot be consent. Um, Even if you think you're 15 and it's not a phase mom, like it, it it is, um, it's not your fault. Like it is 100% on that other person. They should have known better. And I think that's kind of, we set kids up for this lifelong disappointment and shame in themselves for the actions of these 
oftentimes men who hold positions of authority that they shouldn't. Yeah. And like going off of that, like, what do you think, I guess, in society or maybe even institutionally causes victims who had their consent violated to be blamed for that? I think there's like a lot of different things. I think especially survivors of sexual violence who have had consent violated in some kind of way or who have been abused by people with authority. I think the shame really comes from this idea of like, well, what could I have done more to have said no? I think especially when we're talking about power power dynamics, oftentimes you're saying yes. In my case, I said yes. (laughs) I was enthusiastic in it, even though I, you know, enthusiastically said yes, because the fact that that man had the position of authority over me that he did, it didn't mean anything. Because realistically, what if I had said no? You know, like, what were the options? If I had said no, I genuinely don't know what the consequences on me would have been. We see it, you know, in university too, not just in like my own personal experience with this one shithead. Um, (laughs) But like, if you're a professor, and you have a young undergraduate student who looks up to you because you're an expert in your field, you're a doctor, you're a professor, you're well-respected, you have access to things like peer-reviewed journals and resources and grants and reference letters. And that professor that this undergrad really looks up to starts paying them special attention. If they say no, what could happen? You know, like that's such a critical part of this and like this power dynamic of, you can't consent if that person has the ability to ruin your life if you say no. If there are consequences for saying no, then you, you're you in this catch-22. It's a, especially that I think that leads to so much shame because you're not, you know, you're taught that you have to say no and you have to do this. And if you don't do that, then it's not really assault. And like, that's bullshit. Like if you, if you are coerced into saying yes, or you are put in a situation where the safest thing to do is say yes, then you are also not really consenting. You are also in a position where you you can't consent because you have had that ability taken from you because these people. And even if you did want it and you only realize years down the line how messed up it was, that is okay too. Like you, That is still abuse because you could have been groomed. Like this conversation about grooming needs to happen of like, if an older man is paying you a lot of compliments and like telling you that you're the most special person. And then that leads to like more, you know, we see it on so many campuses. We see it at Dawson college in Montreal. We saw it in Concordia. I'm sure it happens at university of Winnipeg. I'm like, it happens everywhere where these men have authority and they have status and they have clout. And that gives them access to this like undergraduate pool of potential prey and it's really fucked up yeah no I wanted to ask now that you mentioned that like what would you say for people I guess bystanders who are seeing their friends be in these unhealthy relationships with these power dynamics where they cannot necessarily consent what advice or what would you tell bystanders to do in these situations it's such a tricky situation like if you're seeing someone in this situation it is such a it's such thin ice to tread like it's your you should not be skating on this lake I think the best thing to do is just have like an honest conversation with this person that you care about that you're seeing this dynamic play out in I think as a bystander I will say this if you are a professor and you see another professor and you think that that professor is potentially grooming an undergraduate student if you are a professor who has the status and the clout to call out that professor and you don't 
you're enabling him. Like if you know that it is an open secret that Dr. So-and-so should leave his door open during office hours and you're not constantly fucking like giving him hell for it, you're part of the problem. Because if you're a bystander in terms of like you have the power to confront the person with power, confront that person with power, like call them out. You should absolutely be having the backs of the students in your department or whoever the people without power are in your situation because you need to have solidarity with those students. Otherwise, you lack, like, in my opinion, academic integrity. (laughs) Um, And I think that if you're not using every bit of power and privilege you have within academia to keep people safe from people that you know are sketchy, you are enabling them to get away with some shit. I think if you're a student and you see a student go into that situation, if they're your friend and you care about them and they seem like the kind of person that's going to be open to hearing some really tough shit, say it, have that, bring it up, but be prepared that like they might not be ready to have that conversation. I really think something that's so important about the bystander conversation is like, if you see your friend and they're experiencing harm, but they don't recognize it as harm yet, just be there for them for when they are ready, like be ready to catch them. If you see someone perpetrating harm and you're not calling that shit out, I would like to have words. <laughs> like, <laughs> there is a way of doing that that helps people in the long term. And maybe that person who is perpetuating harm, maybe there is a sliver of a chance they don't know it and you can really compassionately let them know that you think it's messy and they shouldn't be doing it. Um, But maybe they also do know, and then you can flag that and you can be someone in the department that people know they can trust if they're a survivor because you've stood up for them before. And I think that's something that's like really important is like, it's not just about like intervening for the person who's experiencing harm. It's also about making sure the perpetrator doesn't get to perpetuate harm anymore. And that there's an actual accountability process with the people who have the power to like do something about it. Because when I was in my undergrad, there were professors in my department that I knew would like body a man if they ever (laughs) I I, like I can picture her in my mind right now and I can hear her voice and what she would have said if she had ever heard anything about one of the men in our department and we need more professors like that who are going to be willing to just full-on like destroy the abusers in their department uh, especially if they have tenure and especially if they have power to do so I think that's like the key for bystanders it's like if you know someone's doing harm and you're not saying anything you're also doing harm (laughs) For sure that I think I saw this on Twitter, but I saw this quote that was like, every woman knows a woman who has been abused, but no men know any abusers. He was such a nice guy. (laughs) Like, I feel like that's a really good conversation about just like accountability processes too. That like, on the chance that a person is committing harm and they don't know, we also need to have better ways of holding them accountable that aren't just like punitive, because often that's not going to actually bring about the kind of justice and healing we need. So do you have any book recommendations or other resources like podcasts, articles, websites related to consent and healthy relationships? So here's the thing. There are a lot of books that are written by survivors about their experience as being survivors, especially when it comes to things like the judicial process, when it comes to reporting sexual violence. Um, There's like Know My Name by Chanel. I think Miller. Miller, yes. And I think those, like if you have... 
never experienced trauma, it's really important for you to read from survivors about the impact that their actions have. There's We Believe You, which is all about just specifically surviving sexual violence on campus in universities. I think I don't know any podcasts about it off the top of my head. I'm a big podcast person, but maybe I'll try maybe this one. What I will say is like, there's so much that you can read that's going to be really impactful. Actually, I might just plug something Students for Consent Culture is doing that will be published in 2021. We are writing, it's called the Open Secrets Report. It is all about uh, professor-perpetrated sexual violence and the impact that it has in institutions and institutional betrayal when it comes to sexual violence policies and holding professors accountable within the university's framework. It is not affiliated to any institution and it is purely based on like our experiences and a big survey and interviews we did with survivors and activists across Canada and it's going to have policy recommendations for like here's how we can really make sure this doesn't happen anymore and how we can start changing the culture and turning the tide so that we're actually creating safe spaces for survivors on campus and using trauma-informed research to to do that so that'll be coming out in 2021 if you are a big nerd and like policy and hate that the ivory tower often protects those with tenure or more it does the people whose lives are ruined by those same people and uh so where can our listeners find you like do you have any social media to plug or websites so you can check out Students for Consent Culture Canada at sfccanada.org. I believe our Instagram is sfccanada as well. Uh, you can follow us. We have Facebook, SFCC Canada, Students for Consent Culture Canada. We also, yeah, we have a great team. Um, so you can check out our website to learn more about all the people on our team who are doing such incredible work, you know, all over the place. It's just really like the most uplifting community to be a part of because we're all really passionate and knowledgeable and like experts in the stuff that we we do. And it's really an honor to like work with such incredible people. So you can check us out on our website, on social media. Uh, for me personally, I have an Instagram. Uh, it's mostly pictures of my cats. So if after you're, you know, exhausted by um, reading about the traumatic experience of <laughs> sexual violence, you want to look at some cute cats, um, you can find me at so, S-O dot H-O-U-G-H on Instagram. Got two very cute cats. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. This has been great. And good luck with the rest of your podcast. Thanks for listening to Not Your Mother's Sex Ed. Let us know what you thought by sharing a review. You can subscribe and share our episodes through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Connect with us on Instagram at nymsexed or notyourmothersexed.com.